Good morning and welcome to Family Sunday here at Glendale Christian Church. I'm the lead minister here at GCC. My name's Andrew, and I'm so grateful to have you with us. And it's really great to have all of the kids in the room with us today. Now look, I understand that sometimes that means there's going to be more crinkle and paper. I understand that means there's going to be a little bit more chatter. That's all right. That is good. Let us enjoy having the entire family together as we praise God. You know, I remember being young. I remember being young like some of these little ones in the room. And I always wanted to be special. My whole life I've wanted to be special. I've just really wanted to be fantastic. My dad valued sports, and so I wanted to be really great at baseball. But I was very short on athleticism. And I was never great at baseball, and I was never special because of that. My mom valued academics, and so I tried to get good grades, but math was really hard, and so I did not do real well. I also was a little bit short in stick and homework doing, and so I didn't get the best grades. I didn't feel special because of that. I remember being a little kid, and in T-ball, another little kid said, hey, your glasses look like Clark Kent's, and I decided right then, from then on, I wear my hair as a part, and I dress and look like Clark Kent because Superman is special, but that just doesn't get the job done. My wife doesn't even like the hair. Cut it shorter. You don't need the part. Shorter, Andrew. <laughs> so, am I special? I realized that the way the world thinks about someone being special and the way that God thinks about someone being special are very, very different. The world wants you to be special by being completely unique and individualistic. No, no, no. That's not what makes you special. It's not a special thing to just be completely different from everyone else. You need something else. What makes you special in God's eyes is not just being different from everybody else, but it's being more like Christ. It's being more like the best thing, not just different from everything else. Oh, sure, we are called to be different from the world, but God calls us to be special by being like Christ. And that's what our text today is all about. If you've got your Bibles, please turn them open to the book of 2 Timothy. We'll be reading from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 21. Now, if you are able and you want to, would you stand for the reading of Scripture in reverence of God's Word? As we read together, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 21. Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about trivial matters. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread, spread like gangrene among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have departed from the truth. They say the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, The Lord knows who are His. And everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. In a large house, there are many articles, not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes and some for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, 
and prepared to do any good work. You may be seated. Here, Paul is telling his protege, Timothy, that you have to keep reminding people of things. And it's not lost on me that my job as preacher is to say the same thing over and over and over and over again. Most of everything you will ever hear me say from this stage is stuff you've ever heard. Oh, sure, once in a while, I might be able to mine a little nugget of gold and present something to you that you hadn't considered before. That's possible, and I try to do that through historical research and through study of the original language and through conceptually thinking about God's stuff very, very deeply. But most of the time, everything I'm going to say is stuff you've already heard. And that is okay, because the job of the preacher is to remind God's people of these things. This is what Paul tells Timothy in chapter 2, verse 14. And so you have to wonder, what are the things that Timothy is supposed to keep telling everybody in Ephesus again and again and again? Well, the first place we have to go is back to chapter 1, verse 7, which says, The Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. You have to remind people of this over and over and over again. Because we live in a world where it's very easy to shrink back in timidity. Because the world does not particularly love who we are or what we do. And so it's easier sometimes pragmatically to just be timid, to be fearful about our faith. But you have to be reminded again and again and again, and this is the Holy Spirit's primary job, to remind us of the truth that the Spirit God gave us gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So let us grow in the Spirit so powerful that we can engage the spiritual battle. And let us demonstrate love to the world around us so mightily that they want to know Jesus. And let us live lives of such self-control and self-discipline that we grow in our training and truly become more Christ-like. These are things that we must be reminded of again and again and again. But these are not the only things. But these are part of the very foundations of the gospel. For those who embrace the gospel will grow in power, love, and self-discipline. Of course, you have to remind people of the gospel again and again and again also. And the gospel is a pretty simple message. It goes like this. God, the perfect creator of heaven and earth, made everything. But the very best thing he made was human beings, because human beings are made in God's image. And therefore, human beings are equipped with rationality, the ability to give and receive love, and the ability to choose. Unfortunately, all of us have followed in the footsteps of Adam and Eve and have used that ability to choose poorly, and we've sinned. Sin is any time you either try to do what God wants but fall short and miss, or anytime you intentionally do what God doesn't want. Both of those are sin. Whether you try to be godly but fall short, or whether you run headlong into rebellion against God, that's sin. But when you sin against God, who is perfect, he can't be around you. And so you're separated from God. In fact, the only way to make up for your sin against the perfect God is the perfect payment. And the only thing that we have perfectly to pay God back for all of our sin is our blood. 
Because God tells us that the life force of the creature is in the blood, and the only way that we can pay for our sin is by shedding our blood to the point of death and separation from God. But that's not what he wants. He wants to be with us. He just can't because of our sinfulness. So the entire story of the Bible is God reaching out and trying to pull people back to himself. And you know the story. First, God shouts down, Abram, go to the land I'll show you. Noah, build that ark. Then God burns before them. Tell Pharaoh, I am who I am has sent you. And he leads the way with pillar of smoke and fire. And then he's carried around in a box that you better not touch. In fact, eventually an entire temple is built around the box. But it's never good enough. And so gospel plan is kicked in. The same plan that was created since before creation itself. Whereby God the Father sends God the Son to earth to live a perfect sinless life. We call him Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh, and he lived a perfect sinless life for us. He's the only guy who never sinned, and yet he took the penalty that all of us deserve for our sin. And so Jesus died on the cross in our place, and the great cosmic switch took place. The great cosmic swap happened. Jesus became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And then God the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead, validating and vindicating that the work on the cross paid for our sins, and anyone who believes in their heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, having died on the cross for our sins, is saved. And you're right with God, and you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you're born again, and now able to grow in power, love, and self-discipline, and change the world by making disciples. This is the gospel message. But sometimes the gospel message is forgotten. And so Paul tells Timothy, he better remind him of a trustworthy saying that has four parts. The first part is this. If we died with him, we'll also live with him. And here's an allusion to the waters of baptism. If you believe in your heart God raised Jesus from the dead after having died on the cross for your sins, and you are baptized, you now know that you will live with him. For if we die with him, in baptism, in a death like his, we will also live with him through a resurrection. This is good news. But the good news is also that if we endure, we will reign with him. There's a lot that we have to endure today. We have to endure all sorts of things. We have to endure a world that doesn't care about God. We have to endure a world that likes death over life and likes wickedness over righteousness. We have to endure a lot. But if we endure, we will reign with him. For the Bible tells us that we are God's children. And if we are God's children, then we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And we will reign along with the king as he sits on the throne over the entire universe. But there's also some scary news that comes with this. If we disown him, he will disown us. Now you can disown God in two ways. One is with your words. You can say, I don't even know who he is. No, I don't love God. No, I'm not a Christian. And you can disown him with your words. Now, this is a tempting thing sometimes because we often are timid. And when we're at work or school and somebody asks, do you really go to church? Are you really one of those Christians? The self-preservation in us wants to shrink back and say, well, no. And by doing so, we can deny him. That's one way you can deny Jesus. Another way you can deny Jesus is with your actions. You can claim to be a Christ follower walking towards godliness, but in reality, you're walking towards wickedness. 
If you claim to follow Jesus, and yet you place a lifestyle sin ahead of your devotion to Jesus, then you have denied him with your actions. Now, this is very, very different, and don't mishear me. This is very different from a faithful Christian who sins, which is all of us. Every single one of us has sinned. This is very different. Every single one of us who sins still says, ah, nuts, we did it again. I'm sorry, God. You are the one. My allegiance is in you, Jesus. I'm sorry. Help me to overcome that. The one who denies him with his actions says, oh, sure, I'm a Christian, but really, I'm going to take this thing that God says is no good or God says I shouldn't do, and I'm going to place it as the order of most important thing in my life, and then I'm going to pretend to follow Jesus that way. And that denies him. That denies him. And if you deny him, he will deny you. This is scary, but there's good news. Because if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Now, if you place your faith in him, and you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, God is in you. And if you are therefore in Christ, you are part of him. And that means even if you sin, even if you sin, which you probably will, like before lunch even, you are okay because he cannot disown himself. Now, if you sin, that is very different from disowning him. All of us continue to sin, and we better not pretend that we never sin again, but that is very different from disowning him. Disowning him says, I don't know him and I don't love him, or I pretend to love him, but actually I love this other thing more. And you put that in front of your allegiance to Jesus. Don't do that. Instead, boldly stand forward in power, love, and self-discipline, remembering the truth. If you are in him and you are his, even if you are faithless, he cannot disown himself. And so you're in. Stand bold in the confidence that comes. And we better do it. And the reason we better do it is because there's all sorts of shenanigans going on out there. And so what is the man or the woman of God to do? Well, the man or the woman of God is to do his best to present himself to God as one who correctly handles the word of truth. Now, I love this verse very much. 2 Timothy 2.15 is very, very important to me. Doing your best to present yourself to, one, as one, uh, to God as one who is a worker, approved, not ashamed, and who correctly handles the word of God. I like this word very much because it's a sword word. The one who correctly handles the word of God, the word of truth, is the one who can rightly hold the sword. The same Greek word that gets translated into correctly handles is the same word that's used of a swordsmith who's able to parry and jab, to slice and to cut. In fact, the exact same word is the same word that gets translated here, correctly handles, is the same word that's used to cut like through a jungle, to cut straight a path. It's that word. And that makes perfect sense because the book of Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 describes the word of God as living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing joint and marrow, soul and spirit. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And so if you want to do what God wants you to do, you must be one who correctly handles the word of God. But there are lots of people in this world who do not correctly handle the word of God. 
Even though they might have the word of truth, we are called to handle it correctly. That's what we are called to do. But we live in a world where it's awfully easy to get snookered by all the false teaching that's out there. Because even though the word of truth is easily accessible to everybody, that's not always good for everybody. Because those who are untrained and ill-equipped and unprepared to use the word of truth will use it poorly. And they will cut themselves or they will injure those around them. And we'd better watch out because false teaching always, always leads to quarreling about trivial matters. Every single time, false teaching leads to quarreling about trivial matters. And it leads to indulging in godless chatter. Now, false teaching takes many different forms, but the result of false teaching is always quarreling about trivial matters. And it's fun to quarrel about things that really matter. Like, does God exist? I love to argue with people about does God exist. Is the word of God true? I love to have the Bible fight. Did Jesus come back from the dead? Oh, I dream of people asking me if Jesus really came back from the dead. And I'm ready for that fight. I love that quarrel. It is great. You know what is a waste of time? Quarreling about trivial matters. But we live in a world that loves to quarrel about trivial matters. And it happens all the time. I am even willing to have a debate with another Christian intramurally about matters that aren't the most important, but I don't want to fight people outside of the faith about trivial matters because they're stupid and useless. And when you engage in them, do you know what happens? When you indulge in this godless chatter and these trivial matters, the result is always ruin, ungodliness, and destruction. Every single time. When you embrace quarreling about trivial matters, which is verse 14, and you indulge in godless chatter, which is verse 16 of 2 Timothy chapter 2, the result is always ruin. Those who quarrel about trivial matters, which is useless and a waste of time, it only leads to ruin. And those who indulge in godless chatter, and godless chatter involves anything that is not true about the word of God. And when you engage in that, all it does is lead to more and more ungodliness. It doesn't make you more like God. It makes you less like God. And when you embrace false teaching, it can lead to destruction, which is just what happened to Hymenaeus and Philetus. These two guys who went out spreading false teaching like gangrene. Do you know what you need to do to somebody who's got gangrene in the first century? You need to cut it out. You need to hold the word of God accurately. And you need to train with it so that you can be prepared. Now these two guys, Hymenaeus and Philetus, they said the resurrection already happened. That's ridiculous. The resurrection hadn't already happened except for the Lord Jesus. They had the view that everybody who believed in Jesus had already been resurrected. But that's not true at all. Nobody who believes in Jesus has a resurrection body yet other than Jesus. And nobody gets it until his return. And then everyone who's dead in Christ gets their resurrection body. And all of us who are still alive when he returns, perhaps today the Lord shall return. We get transformed into our resurrection bodies. So the lie that says it already happened destroys the faith of some because they think, what's the point of even going to church? Why should I even bother? I can't, I can't even be with God. False teaching will destroy the faith of some. And so what we must do as disciple makers is present the true gospel. The true gospel, the same gospel that I explained earlier, must be presented 
And alongside of this truth, alongside the gospel, and the truth that the spirit God gave us doesn't make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline, and alongside the foundational truths that if we died with him, we'll also live with him, and if we endure, we'll also reign with him, and if we disown him, he'll also disown us. And if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. These foundational truths surrounding the gospel have on them this inscription, the Lord knows who are his. The Lord knows who are his. The Lord can see mine, 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 mine. And then he looks out into the world and he says, not mine. And then he even sees some who claim to love him, but place their wickedness ahead of their allegiance to him. And he says, I don't even know you. Depart from me. Get on out of here. And to those who refuse to do the good work of service, he says, where were you when I was hungry? Where were you when I was thirsty? Why didn't you ever come visit me? Why didn't you ever give me a blanket? And they will cry out, we never saw you this way, Lord. And he'll say, unprepared to do the good work to which I've called you. Depart. May it never be. There are some people who aren't sure if they're the Lord's. And this is the, the weird part to me. We should have total confidence that we are the Lord's. After all, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. If you are in Christ, you are his, and he cannot disown you. But there are some people who think, I don't know if I'm in Christ. There is a way to tell. Here's how you go. Ready? Do you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead after having died on the cross for your sins? Yes? Welcome to the family, brother. No? Then you're not his. That's how you know. That's how you know. And then you live your entire life trying to show the world the truth you know inside. And that's why right next to that first inscription, the Lord knows who are his, is this inscription. Everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. Everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. For turning away from wickedness is turning towards Christlikeness. The world is full of wickedness, and it's easy to get snookered by the wickedness of the world. Oh, it's very easy. It's very easy to get snookered by the wickedness of the world. After all, we live in a whole world that values wickedness. The world will look at us and they'll say, oh, you guys are weird. You should be like us. We, we have public institutions that take our children into clubs and do different things to make them wicked and they present it as fun and great and wonderful. We have entire groups of people dedicated to the destruction of living beings. Wickedness is all around us, and it's easy. But if you know that you are his, and he knows that you are his, you have an obligation. If you claim the name of the Lord, you have an obligation to turn away from wickedness. We do. And if you embrace the truth of these inscriptions, which are inscribed along the outside of the gospel and the truths of our power, love, and self-discipline and the trustworthy sayings in 2 Timothy, the result is holiness, usefulness, and preparedness. The first is holiness. Holiness is being separate, set apart. It's different from the world. We are holy. The word holy is literally sanctus. It's the sanctification it's the difference in us. When we believe the truth and we turn from wickedness, oh yeah, we're, we're very weird to the world. They say, but why don't you like to do all the things that we like to do? 
because we have turned away from wickedness and towards Christlikeness. But that makes you very much unlike all of us. Yes, it does. It makes us unlike all of you because we're trying to be more like Christ. That's exactly what it does. Holiness is being separated from the world and being cleaved to Christ. From the world to Christ. But it also leads to usefulness. Because verse 20 and 21 talk about how in a large house there are multiple articles. And some are used for special purposes. These are gold and silver. Imagine the goblets that you take out, the fine china you take out when, when grandma comes to town. But there are also articles in your house that are, that are for common use. These are, are wood and clay. And if you want to be used and especially useful for the master, if you want to have special purpose for the master, you have to be useful. And the primary way to be useful is to train in godliness. You have to train in godliness. Because the person who trains in godliness becomes prepared. In fact, that's what it means at the end of verse 21, to be useful to the master, prepared to do every good work. Now, how could you possibly prepare to do the good work? Well, the way that you prepare to do the good work is by focusing on handling the word of God rightly. You have to handle the word of God rightly. You have to think about it very, very deeply. You have to think about it like a sword. You have to think about the truth of the sword of the spirit which you wield. You have to think about the word of truth. You have to understand how it's constructed. You have to understand how it feels in your hand. You have to understand how you can wield it. And you have to start practicing again and again and again. And not only do you need truth in your life, but you better think about truth in a good way. It's not good enough just to be correct. You also have to be creative. And the man who holds the word of God correctly is also doing that creatively. Because the most of the time, the world will look at us and they'll say, oh, there's nothing special about this book. There's nothing special about this book. But when I see this book, I don't just see a book, I see a sword. And when I learned that the word of God is like a sword, and I learned that you're supposed to think about the word of God like a sword, church stopped being boring for me. Because every single time I went to church, I realized this is an opportunity for me to train in godliness, to sharpen my sword, to sharpen my understanding of the sword, to be ready and useful, prepared to use it. And we'd better be, because there are a lot of people out there who get their, their sword of truth, their word of truth, and they don't use it well. They aren't prepared. They aren't trained and therefore, they aren't useful to the master. I want everybody to be useful. And that's why when I prepare and I preach and I do different things, I always tell myself, I want it to be fun to 16-year-old Andrew, to 18-year-old Andrew, to 25-year-old Andrew, because all of those versions of Andrew thought church was boring unless I had the right mindset of creativity. And so I want it to be great. And if you work really hard with the word of God and you hold it correctly and creatively, you know what you can inspire in others? A desire to be here among God's people. My prayer is that every single person in the Glendale Christian Church congregation would want to go to church as much as my little boy Clark. 
Now, my little boy Clark, sitting down here on the front row, he loves to come to church. He loves it. Now, Clark, who has Down syndrome um, and is almost 10 years old, is sometimes hard to understand, and so he will say his word for church, which sounds conspicuously similar to his word for juice, and so he'll say, sure, or juice, and it's like, hmm, are you saying church or juice? And I wasn't sure for a while, and I'd say, what do, you, what do you mean, Clark? Use a different word. And he would go to my closet, and he would say, blue, and he kept pointing to a blue shirt, and he kept saying church, and I said, you want to go to church, and you want me to wear my blue shirt. Yes, yes, and he's so excited when you finally get it right. Yes, he has been begging for me to take him to church all week long and to wear my blue shirt. So I wore it for you, Clark. I love you. And here we are at church. And he wants to go. He wants to go every day, every night before we go to bed. Sure. Every morning. Sure. Blue shirt. He wants to go so badly so we can hang out with Papa and Mimi, so we can hang out with Greg, so we can hang out with Rachel, so we can sing the songs up with Leah and the other kids, so we can do this stuff. He is eager to be here, and he doesn't fully understand all of the truth. Now, he gets a lot of it, but if you ask Clark to explain, all right, break down the gospel for me, buddy. I don't know that he'd be able to do that yet. He doesn't have the abstract reasoning, and I think that the mentality might lag behind a typical kid, but that's all right. He's got the excitement that I wish everybody had. I wish I was excited to come to church as much as Clark is, and I'm pretty hopped up to come to church, especially on Sunday morning. That's how much he loves it, and that's what I pray for you. Love it. So that's why when we do what we do, we try to be excellent. We strive for perfection. We settle for excellence. We know we're going to get tongue-tied once in a while. We know we're going to stumble. I know I'm going to reverse the Bible reference once. I know I'm going to mess up. I know there's going to be miscues here or there, but we want excellence. We want it to be so fun and so creative and so awesome that you come here because here's what we're always trying to do. We're trying to strike that perfect balance between being attractive to the man who is serious and to the man who is curious. To the woman who is serious, Glendale's your place. To the woman who's curious, Glendale's your place. Now, we want to do things so well and we want to present a message that's so positive and inspirational and exegetical and uplifting that you come and you hear it and you're inspired to go do the work of making disciples. That's what we want. But it is possible to go home and just listen to a better sermon than you'll get here. We want to make the music experience so worshipful that you just pour yourself out in adoration to God. But it's not all about the show, because if you want to go to a show, we're just down the road from Branson. There's a lot of really good shows down there. But we want to make the best joyful noise that we can. We understand that we are here to have a good time, but you might have a more vociferously good time starting at 2 today. I understand. I understand. But we want this place to be a place for the curious. You know, I just don't know about that God thing. I'm not sure about that God thing. I want this place to be so awesome that you're willing to invite people here so you can say, yeah, why don't you come and hear about this God stuff? Why don't you come and hear about this God stuff? Because even if you can't explain the gospel perfectly to somebody, you know what you can do as an easy entry point? Just say, come on to church. There's this guy, Andrew, I'd love to introduce you to. Because I can bet you most of the time, I'm going to share the gospel. Huh? You guys hear it like every week, don't you? 
Invite the guy who's curious. Let him, let her here too. But this is also a place for those who are serious. Oh, you're ready for some deep level, high, awesome stuff. Oh, I got the guy for you. Let's go to church. Let's sing some amazing music and hear some wonderful musicians and pour ourselves out fully and have a very safe, awesome, fun kids program. Let's bring people because we love it. There's no false teaching going on. Because if there was, you need to cut it out like angering. And you know what you can do to make sure that there's no false teaching going on here? You can just check the book. You can just investigate it. You can open up your book and you can say, oh, yeah, that's what it says. Accurate. Oh, yeah, it does go that way. Correct. Oh, yeah, well done. Now, you might not know how to handle the word as well as some others that go here, but that's all right. You train, you practice again and again and again. But everybody has access to the word of truth so that you can see if what we're doing here is pleasing unto the Lord. And if it's not, steer clear. But if we are preaching the truth and we are showing people the way, then bring them because this is where you can get the goods. Now, I want you to get the goods, but how are you going to do it? Well, there's a couple of steps that I've got for you. First, I want you to read. This week, I want you to read the entire book of First Timothy, or Second Timothy. The entire book of Second Timothy, all the way through, all four chapters. And then, what I want you to do is go back and reread chapter two of Second Timothy at least twice more. At least two more times. So read the whole book once, and then read chapter two at least two more times, because we'll finish the chapter next week. And then I want you to contemplate. I want you to meditate. I want you to think very seriously, very, very hard. I want you to think deeply, contemplate. Correctly handling the word of truth. Think, do I correctly handle the word of truth? I've been given a very sharp sword. Do I correctly handle it? Do I swing it around and sometimes cut the tassel off my own garment? Do I swing it around aimlessly and sometimes hit the wrong things? Do I, do I know correctly how to use this creative and awesome weapon of God that he's given to me? And then I want you to think about your spiritual training. You have to train. You have to train. You can't just be a guy who's been given a sword and then automatically be ready for battle. That's not how it works. You have to practice over and over and over again. How do you think Michael Jordan got good at free throws? By shooting free throws. How do you think you will get good at evangelism? By inviting people. You have to practice. You have to train. You have to do the stuff. And that's why you think about your spiritual training, you get your spiritual health and training packet, and you think about the spiritual health assessment, and then you develop some spiritual goals and some spiritual tasks, and along with some spiritual accountability and encouragement, you work on training to be stronger. I want you to think very deeply about that. And then I want you to pray. And the way I want you to pray is confidently. I want you to pray confidently since you are his, therefore I want you to ask for strength to turn from wickedness. Oh, it's so easy to turn from wickedness if you get the strength you need from God. But in this world, it's very easy for the man who doesn't ask for strength, the woman who refuses to ask for strength, to timidly shrink back and accept the wickedness that comes from the left and comes from the right instead of marching in bold power, love, and self-discipline towards godliness. It's very easy. So you'd better ask God for the strength. And then I want you to prepare. I want you to be prepared. And I want you to prepare to do the good work of inviting someone to church. And I know this can be awkward. I know it can be awkward. Maybe you're not an extroverted person. Maybe you're an introverted person, like a really introverted person. You can still do it. 
I know because my eldest, Kate, who's very introverted and doesn't always want to be around people, set up as one of her spiritual goals that she's going to be more evangelistic. And one of those tasks was to invite someone to church. And so when Anne took her to the gym, which was a whole other thing, they're at the gym working out, and Kate sees this gal, and she says, hey, do you want to go to church at Glendale Christian? It's just down the road. My dad preaches there, and it's really great. We got stuff on Sunday morning and Wednesday night, and we got stuff for all ages. You should come and check it out. And I thought, oh, good for you. Good for you, Kate. Hopefully we see that lady here at church. But she invited, and she doesn't even want to talk to anybody. Okay. I bet you like to talk to people. Cool, work God stuff into that conversation. After all, you've got a really sharp, awesome word of truth. Use it, and use it well. Will you stand with me as we pray this morning?